So thank you guys very much for having me. I met um, Pip a few months ago, and um, she had told me about this, and I thought it was really interesting um, because we really, where we spend a lot of our time is trying to take things from academic environments, mostly primary source historical materials up until now. And we found really, really interesting ways to package those, make them very simple to use, and we've had a lot of success with engagement with mainstream, non-academic audiences for that kind of content. So it seemed like with the, a lot of the mission of this conference um, was to try to figure out better engagement of the public and better engagement of sort of the non-academic community, so I think she thought I might fit in here. Um, I am an entrepreneur. We are a private company, the only one I've seen here so far, um, which I realize. Um, I was an English major. I took no business classes in college. I accidentally became an entrepreneur and have found out I'm really good at it and I like it a lot, but um, started as an English major. I also, my wife and I have a small documentary film company. We did a documentary in New Orleans after the hurricane. We've done a documentary on the jazz history of Charleston, South Carolina. So. I've also lent my voice and my editorial skills to me in this project, so I feel like I have some room to speak on these sort of things. So, um, so really a lot of what we try to focus our time on um, is, tr you know, I, I think we, we started this as a business that was taking historic books and turning them into print-on-demand books. That's how we originally started in 2007. Um, and we met the British Library by putting about 65,000 books, 19th century books, they had digitized with Microsoft. We built a system to mass customize the packaging of those and make those available on Amazon and other websites. Um, and we turned that into a, a pretty nice little business and opened up access to these books that had been really unavailable to folks only in the reading room up until then. Um, and we avoided digital really until 2011 when the iPad came out and we thought, okay, now here is a device that actually can lend some um, credit, you know, it really, it, it, it matches the content. These are really majestic documents, these are really beautiful documents, and here's a, here's a device that will actually um, let that be seen. So the project we did with them, I'm going to talk a little bit about later in the, the um, presentation, but what we realized was that this was really about trying to connect the learning institution. We work with a lot of academic libraries in the states with the Library Publishing Coalition, University of Pitt, Purdue, University of Michigan, um, taking their things and trying to make them uh, more accessible to, to normal folks. Um, So a lot of this, for us, is about digital humanities. I mean, we do do some things in the harder sciences, but what we found is that digital humanities and things that are in the digital humanities realm are easier to find resonance with non-academic audiences. And so a lot of this is just about effective digital storytelling and trying to create tools that make that easy and that create really good user experiences. And so, um, this is a thing that libraries in the states struggle with, is trying to remain uh, relevant in the modern sort of digital world. Um, and so a lot of what we talk about is that in order to get people to listen to the stories you're telling, you have to tell them in the same language that they're used to hearing stories. And the reality is that on the tablets and on the devices, the bar is being set by companies like Amazon and Netflix and Flipboard and Evernote. And these companies that are creating these super simple, 
super easy, super fast media experiences. And, I, and when I talk about libraries, I do talk about the states. I don't know the situation over here as much. But in the states, when you then ask someone to engage with their public library digitally, you literally ask them to step back in time 10 years um, in order to try to even make that happen. Um, and it is an unsustainable way for libraries to think about how they engage their audiences. World-class interfaces really aren't an option anymore. It's the minimum price of admission to show up and make sure people listen to your stories. And this morning in Christine's presentation, I thought it was amazing just the, the, the real, I think, opportunity for collaboration because what she said is that people drop things off of them and expect them to preserve them for centuries, which if somebody did that to us, we would run away. <laughs> I don't even know where we would start, right? But what, but what we are very good at is the interface layer. You know, that is the part that I think um, we get up every morning wondering what is going to break when iOS 7 comes out and somebody downloads it on the iPad. I was on an email string last week about that. We downloaded it. It's a laundry list of about 24 things. Nothing super major. They're changing the opacity on the buttons. So as soon as somebody downloads iOS 7, our buttons aren't going to work anymore. 60,000 pieces of content, 400 anthologies, you know, tens of thousands of users. They're not going to be able to see our buttons. Um, if the text gets too small in the drop-down menus, they're just knocking the text out completely. So it's these, this laundry list of things that if we weren't dealing with those things now, our entire ecosystem would break in six months when people start using iOS 7. And I, we had a little side conversation earlier that I actually like that environment because it, in the old days you could get a grant, digitize some stuff, throw a website up on the internet, and it could sit there for 10, 15 years and slowly decay. It's not really an option anymore. Now, if you're not every year getting ahead of the user experience, your product is going to be completely unusable. And I think it forces discipline. It forces us to stay ahead. It forces us to future-proof the presentation layer of things. So um, you know, I, I, I kind of like that. So when I say someone has to be there to listen, um, I really believe that, that it's really I think from an institutional standpoint, it is about the content and the preservation. But if you want people to listen to the stories, it's really about the user experience. They're never going to engage with your content if you're asking them to engage in a user experience that isn't as good as everything else they use in their life. And that's really what we've focused on building. So I think it's a huge opportunity. I think it's a new era. Um, for digital humanities, citizen scholarship, we have um, a wide range of people that are using our tools to curate from curators at the British Library to subject matter experts on a small city in New England. And they can go into this massive database of millions of public domain historical objects and organize them, enhance them, clean up the data, um, and then publish them and just know that they're going to work everywhere on every device in the way people using those devices expect. So I think it's a real, real real opportunity. Um, we talked a little bit about this, it's just this gap is really what we see as our mission, trying to close this gap between the consumer world, let's restart later, <laughs> um, and what, they're, what people are used to from consumer media companies. We talk a lot about the library as an interface, I mean this is a, I always use Netflix as an example on this, like um, in the states, Netflix pay you know people pay from you know nine ninety five a month to twenty dollars a month. But as Netflix has gone more and more into its streaming service, 
the product is not the movies. The product is actually just a service layer. It's just a, 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 a some, they have gone and licensed things and they've made them very easy for you to use, which is the exact definition of a library. And that is exactly what libraries do. Um, and I always, you know, the DPLA, I get asked a lot about the DPLA in America. And I think the DPLA, I don't know if you all know that Digital Public Library of America, but it's this big sort of cooperation where everybody's contributing data, kind of like European, very similar to European, where everyone contributes data, you've got an aggregated search experience. But I think the problem that those projects have is that it would be like using Netflix and every time you clicked on a movie you went to a different website to watch the movie. And the websites all worked differently and had players that worked differently and, and I, you know, people would not pay $14.95 a month for that service. Um, I think when you're doing research, I think that is a completely acceptable approach. You're, you, you go, you look at something, you like it, you don't like it, you hit the back button. If you're trying to find out why you have a rash on your arm, you type that into Google, you go read an article, you decide if you believe it or not, you hit the back button. When people are having a media experience, they expect Netflix, they expect Apple, they expect Amazon, they expect everything to work, and they expect it all to be consistent. So we're trying to you know, talk to libraries and say you are an interface and you really should think about yourselves in the same kind of terms and think about your patrons in the same way Netflix thinks about its customers, which is that end-to-end -end user experience and making sure people are happy with that. So I was just going to go through a few of the projects that we're working on. This was the first um, app that we launched with the British Library. We launched this back in June 2011. Um, we actually launched in conjunction with the Worldwide Developers Conference, Apple's conference they have in San Francisco. It got downloaded uh, over 250,000 times in the first two weeks. Um, for most of 2011 and 2012, the British Library had more people accessing books through this app than they actually had walking into the library in London. Um, there are thousands of books that have been accessed through this app that were never asked for in the reading rooms, ever, that they have any record of. So it was a real, um, it got written up in magazines, won a publishing innovation award in the States as the best records and academic product. So it was one of those kind of, it's great in PowerPoint presentations to rattle off all these wonderful things about it. It was not really a scalable business. Um, this was incredibly hard. This took two developers five months to build. Every time we wanted to do something new with it, we had to push out an update to the app. It had 65,000 books inside of it, which we learned very quickly was completely overwhelming to a non-researcher because they didn't show up to the app with a bunch of search terms in their head knowing what they were looking for. So what we found was that people, you know, kind of almost as a throwaway before we launched it, we went to the British Library and said, hey, can you go pick out 100 books on geography, 100 on the history of Central and South America? I think we came up with about 21 pretty broad categorizations that they, would, they threw 100 or 150 books into. And what we found was overwhelmingly, this is what people were using. They were opening the app and they were gravitating towards something they were interested in, they were tapping, and it was a browsable experience. There were very few searches occurring. So we took that as a challenge and said, you know, how can we, this is just a, this is one of the quotes that was in the City Morning Herald about it, um, just saying that this was an example of how libraries could really uh, be meaningful in the digital realm. This was one of the reviews. So what we ended up doing was over the last year and a half, we built this platform, which is called Biblioboard Creator, which is sitting on top of about six million historical objects. 
We've also written APIs to integrated in content DM and systems like that so the individual institutions can do searches on top of their own digital asset management systems. But what it allows anyone to do is go in, um, select primary source content they want in a multimedia product, um, do extensive metadata cleanup, they can delete blank pages, they can delete pages that are at the back of a book that's a digitization artifact, maybe you guys have seen those with the color swatches and things, that's just not something the regular person needs to see if they're trying to experience an antiquarian book. So they can hide pages, uh, they can clean up data, they can, and at the end of this we generate a whole new mark record which we give back to the library. Um, so, you know, we write a description. I've never seen a mark record for a 19th century book that actually has a description in it, but for 20,000 that have gone through our system now, 25,000, they actually all have descriptions. So, um, so slowly we're chipping away at this big mass of mass digitization and providing some, some uh, organization and, and form to it. Uh, the organization can upload a logo, they can brand the product. In this case, you know, someone from the British Library went through and said, okay, we've got 65,000 of these books, but what if somebody's interested in bicycling? What would be interesting to those guys? And they went through and created a product, one of many, that has about 150 books from the 19th century about bicycling, guides to the UK, um, how to fix your bike. Uh, and all of a sudden, you've taken this pretty esoteric content and you've actually made it interesting to anyone who rides a bike, which is a really pretty radical change in the audience for this kind of content. I've never had someone who rides a bike who hasn't opened this and ended up zooming in on the maps and seeing how people toured around uh, Europe and toured around the UK in the 19th century. So this is the web, this is the web view of the product, but this is just some of the, the, we call these anthologies, these multimedia collections, but they've got books, ephemera, postcards, audio, video, any kind of media, all organized thematically. Typically one of these anthologies will have between 60 and 150 pieces of content in it, just depending on the story that the curator is trying to tell. But you can see Arctic regions, gypsies, castles, trains, uh, China, uh, women's travels in the 19th century. So all these become really, really um, interesting and more accessible products, we think, for, for uh, regular consumers. This is just a snapshot. We've done over 400 of these internally. Um, this is just a quick little snapshot of some of them giving you an idea of the kind of things that are being produced. Um, and we are again working with a lot of third parties now, museums and different folks like that. This is an interesting one, UNC Press. This is in the States at least there's this big push towards consolidating scholarly publishing, the library, and the university press. This is a, I was just today at the American Association of University Press Conference, and there were four different seminars on this, um, how the universities really want to consolidate that activity um, and have it kind of happen in one place. And of course, politically, people are all over the board about whether that's a good idea or not. But, but this is a kind of an example of how that can work. In this case, the university press took some in-copyright books um, about desegregation. The library had done an oral history project, so they wove in some of those oral histories. The library had also done a huge digitization project on Jim Crow era, um, going out and actually um, digitizing photos of old schools and classrooms from um, before segregation ended. And they were able to 
first of all, just assemble all that stuff in a simple online platform and hit publish and just have it work on all the devices and on the web. Um, but it's interesting that they were, you know, it's, it's a real, I think, example of how you can take modern content about historical things, blend it with the primary source objects themselves, and create something that is a broader, bigger product than just an individual book that's been published on this topic. And it's a real, for the press, you know, they're selling 10, 15 copies of these a year on Amazon if they're lucky. It's a, a way for them to kind of repurpose their backlist and give it a whole new context and a whole new meaning. So. This is the Louisiana State Museum, another example, small museum, no budget at all, couldn't even think about going out and hiring app developers and using our platform they were able to put together you know, some really great collections. And then we go out and actually do sell these uh, to libraries. So at the end of the day they actually are going to end up getting some revenue back that they can put back into their digitization projects when we're able to find people to buy these collections that they've created. This is what that looks like on the web. So you can see even on the web, you know, we're trying to be really innovative and move towards more, you know, Pinterest has certainly figured out that people like highly visual browsable interfaces and that's our whole platform is just built to work that way. So summary, uh, I think world-class user experiences aren't really optional anymore. If you don't have one, you just can't expect people to use your stuff, um, at least regular people. Um, and a future proofing, I think, is also no longer optional. The pace at which the devices and the operating systems are changing, um, there is no get a grant, throw something up, and leave it there anymore. It's just not really an option. So we think companies like ours, who are just focusing on that, we think we can develop great partnerships with cultural institutions. Um, we know for sure that there is a huge pent-up demand for this content if it's organized the right way and made simple to use both commercial and non-commercial. We have huge parts of our platform that are non-commercial. Um, we, we have an accessible dissertations module that's non-commercial. We have plenty of free products. People can choose to make their products free if they want. Um, we think that, that what we're doing, if you, if you really stack us up against, I guess, older school companies like Yale and ProQuest and companies that have been in this business for a long time, we have completely different cost structures and completely different approaches to how we create these products. And we have driven enormous amounts of cost out of the process. And so that is reflected in the prices that we charge for our products, which we think are a complete reinvention of the sort of value proposition for these types of things. Um, I mean, ask the British Library, definitely private-public partnerships work. These guys are one of our best advocates. Um, and we feel like that, that libraries and academia in particular can really play a huge role in balancing the power paradigm and media distribution today, which is, of course, dominated by companies like Apple, commercial companies, Apple and Amazon. Um, there's a huge amount of goodwill. In the States, 94% of people think libraries are important, which, being from America, I can tell you, I can honestly not think of one other thing that 94% of Americans agree on. <laughs> Nothing. I've never, I've racked my brain. If anyone can come up with it, please let me know. Um, but it is a fully unrealized potential. I mean, I think the last stat was maybe 14% of people in the United States had interacted with their library digitally, and most of those people never did it again. So, um, so anyway, that's kind of where we're coming from. Really appreciate being here. Thank you, guys.